I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. In June of 2011, the Panamanian government, the U.S. ambassador to Panama, and an American company, AES, celebrated the construction of the Chan 75 Hydroelectric Dam. By international development standards, the project was a huge success that represents the potential for economic growth and international cooperation in the, quote, developing world. But those who benefited financially from the project told only a small piece of the story. Missing from the narrative was the 3,400 acres of flooded rainforest along the Changanala River that drove over 1,000 indigenous Nabe people from homes they had lived in for generations. Prior to the dam, the Nabe people's lifestyle was one of subsistence and peace, but the new development created upheaval through violence, corruption, and theft. In 2001, the World Bank established a land administration project which would enable title creation for indigenous lands in Panama. But it failed to give land titles to people that had inhabited the land for countless generations. Instead, it was used to declare the Nabe people migrants, claim their land as state property, and what followed were efforts to forcibly evict the people from their land. When false promises of compensation didn't work, police and company representatives forced evictions by burning homes, flooding villages, and destroying homes with bulldozers, explosives, and other violence. The World Bank never consulted with the people that would be most impacted by the development. Not a single indigenous person received title to their land, and 99% of the people removed from their land now say that their lives have become much worse after being displaced. The crops and forests they depended on for life were destroyed and many were forced into urban towns where they struggled to survive and live unhealthy, unhappy lives. While all of this has resulted in impoverishment, the World Bank can now report the opposite, claiming that these Nabe people used to live a harsh and impoverished subsistence lifestyle, but have now risen out of that $2 a day extreme poverty level and into a more, quote, modern urban environment. This is a show about land, specifically land access and agriculture. What are the forces that prevent land access? What are the consequences? And how are some groups working to combat the dangerous trend of land consolidation into destructive hands? We picked this Panamanian story kind of by random because there are so many examples of this happening all over the world. Large international organizations and economic institutions put pressure on local governments to hand over their land for development. So that foreign investment can come in, take control of local resources, and funnel that money back across borders, or retain it within these countries among a political and economic elite. The people, of course, who live on this land have no voice. They have no say in these decisions, and the global economy looks at them with indifference and contempt, only bothering to deal with them when it's time to push them off their land. We like to think that these stories of stealing from indigenous people are something of the past, something that the nations of the world, places like the United States, have been built upon, but we've learned from our mistakes. Like the overthrow of the Guatemalan democracy. Well, for a more recent example, yes. 
But these very recent examples, with the participation of groups like the World Bank, these international groups and multinational companies investing in these opportunities show that, once again, nothing has changed. The violence that the world has been built upon has just been shifted out of sight into increasingly far-reaching places. And this exists in every part of our economy, including the land itself. And while this example in Panama is very overt, there was a large American corporation, AES, that secured the contract for building this project, and it involved an international organization, the World Bank, to put in place certain things that would help this project come about. This land grabbing, it happens all over the world, silently, by investors and institutions who make secret deals and deal with rural people and indigenous people off the record. So at the height of the economic crisis around 2007, there was a related spike in food prices at the same time. More than a billion people went hungry, and foreign investors used this as an opportunity to seize land at record low prices under the guise of helping create jobs and stimulate economies. And the Oakland Institute researched this phenomenon in Africa and other developing countries and found some startling things. In 2009 alone, an estimated 59 million hectares, which is 145 million acres, in developing countries were taken control by foreign investors, a majority of which land was in Africa. The people primarily affected by these land deals were small farmers and subsistence communities, people who relied on the land for their livelihoods. These deals were done without the people even knowing. There were no contracts and no public records for journalists to discover. The only way to discover these land deals was to see or experience firsthand the bulldozers or other methods being used to destroy people's lands and throw them off of it. Here's an example how some of these deals were carried out and by whom. The Oakland Institute discovered that in Sudan, a former United States ambassador for refugee affairs struck a deal with politicians and took control of 1.5 million acres of land with an option to control much more for just $25,000. This particular contract gave this former ambassador the right to do anything he wanted to with the land, cut the forest down, rent the land to subtenants, and if any minerals or other resources were discovered on this land, gold, oil, diamonds, whatever, he would give it to the people. Uh, not quite, Daniel. They were his to sell. The people who actually lived on the land, these people you just mentioned, they had no idea, obviously. And if they had found diamonds under their feet, well, what do you think would happen? They'd be rich, David, because they just discovered diamonds. More like they'd be homeless, because you can bet your life that he would have kicked them off this land. And remember, this isn't some like evil corporate tyrant or dictator of a third world nation. This is a U.S. ambassador for refugee affairs. You can't make this up. Well, maybe he's just thinking about his future prospects, David. If he can create more refugees, well, more demand for his job, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the ultimate form of job security right there. And that's just one example. But this land grabbing, which intensified after the financial crisis, it did not just occur in the developing world, but even right here in the United States. The financial crisis shook a lot of institutional investors, and a lot of value was lost in the stock market and other investment assets. And it encouraged investors to seek places to store their capital that had some more cushion against economic spikes. And a lot of big investors found that in the form of agricultural land. And this gets us closer to this tipping point that we are now on, the crisis of farmland access, which is the focus of this show. 
Well, first off, Daniel, farming is really hard. Just 1.2% of the U.S. population are farmers or related in some way to farming, agriculture, ranching, whatever. But they provide food for the entire nation and much of the world. And this comes at a great cost. Farming is the eighth most deadly job in the United States, much more than police officers, which a lot of people tend to think is number one. And in fact, in terms of suicide rates, this is something that I think really highlights how difficult farming is and how much of a crisis farmers are facing. Farmers have the highest rate of suicide of any profession, and not just by a little bit, but by over 30%. Let that figure sink in for just one moment. Why is that the case? Well, a lot of it has to do with debt, and a lot of that debt has to do with land access. That's right, David. It is extremely hard to be a farmer today, and you really touched on why that is. It's hard to be a farmer because it's almost impossible to make a living from farming without being dependent on industrial agriculture. And the reason for that starts with what you just said, accessing land. It's very expensive to access land because land prices have skyrocketed. In the U.S., prices for farmland have more than doubled between 2003 and 2013, and that price appreciation has accelerated at a faster rate for some regions in the Corn Belt. And these increased prices are being driven by a number of factors. A big part of it is this institutional push for agricultural land as investments, which artificially raises the value beyond the pure agricultural value. And from a market standpoint, agricultural land is seen as low productivity if your alternative option is a shopping mall. So a lot of land that is valued based on its highest and best use, like a retail mixed-use project, raises the value of land even further beyond its agricultural value, making it near impossible for a farmer to access land that would be affordable using sustainable agricultural methods. And as a result, just to get into farming, many people have to take on enormous loans just to afford the land in the first place. And this is where the trouble really begins, because if you have a large loan and you have to pay this back, your only way to do that is usually to conform to industrial agricultural methods because it takes a long time to build a sustainable and regenerative relationship with soil. Years and years. And that's too long to start paying back a loan. So what many farmers have to subscribe to are these industrial, destructive, short-term methods which involve monoculture so that they can ramp up production for a single crop. And in order to do that, they need to take on additional loans to afford the industrial inputs like chemical fertilizers and other machines. And these practices now make a farmer dependent on the global economy because they're now selling a commodity, which they are competing with farmers all over the world, which drives prices for their crops down. And that means that today farmers are experiencing some of the lowest revenues in history because of high costs and extremely low prices for their products. And it goes without saying that these farming operations that are now encouraged by the industrial economy do not in any way benefit the surrounding community because the crops that these farmers are growing don't go to the people around them, but rather onto trucks and long-distance shipping lines where they can be distributed wherever the market can get the best price for them. And the focus of this show is, of course, on the United States, but these same concepts and stories play out around the world especially in India. We've talked in the past about those high suicide rates among farmers in India, and this land access and debt is the same thing driving that problem there, as well as around the world. One thing that is unique to the United States, though, is the aging of our farmers. 57% of farm operators 
over 55 years old. And those younger than 35, well, they make up just 5% of the farming population. What does this mean? This means our farms are getting older. And as these farmers pass away and leave their farms to their children, well, a lot of these children don't want to be farmers. They take this land and they sell it to these large industrial farms, or they'll turn around and try and lease it to farmers who want to just get started. And what this means is that the same real estate problems that we're seeing play out in the cities around the United States, with landlords constantly raising their rent on apartments, and the cost of buying a home or apartment being out of reach of many Americans, the same thing is happening to this land that grows the very food that we eat. It's either too expensive to buy or too expensive to rent. And the result is less farmers and more misery. So David, the focus of this show is how this inability to access land affordable presents a barrier to what is possibly the only solution to the destruction of industrial agriculture that we talked about in episode 16, which is regenerative agriculture and sustainable local economies that benefit local communities. And we did touch on some of the disastrous consequences of industrial agriculture in episode 16, like the loss of global topsoil, the coming phosphorus crisis as non-renewable resources that make up our chemical fertilizers become more and more scarce, the dependence on oil and petrochemicals for these long-distance transportation infrastructures and large-scale operations on these farms, Well, the only viable long-term solutions to these problems, to this wholesale global destruction of the soil, must begin with regenerative and sustainable agricultural practices, which will necessarily be local. Because part of being sustainable means, among many things, foregoing a dependence on cheap fossil fuels for long-distance transportation. But for those who wish to participate in sustainable agriculture and build local economies, It's made difficult or impossible by these land access barriers. Here in this show, we spend a lot of time talking about bad news, these problems, the things that are going wrong. But we always try and make an effort to offer solutions to alternatives to these broken systems, to suggest ways that they could be fixed or better to get to that better world. And today, we're going to devote a lot of time to an organization that is trying to do just that. This is a group working to fix a lot of these land access problems and work towards a more sustainable, responsible future and somebody we're really excited to talk about. But as the bearer of bad news on this show, I uh, am incapable of hearing anything good, so I'm going to have to step out for just a little bit here, Daniel, but I will let you take over for this next section and I'll be back to wrap this up with you once we can get back to some bad news. So, Sounds good, David. We'll see you in a little bit. Have fun. There seems to be a perfect storm of factors that threaten to completely reshape who owns farmland here in the U.S. and globally. 400 million acres of farmland in the U.S. alone will change hands in the next 20 years. Farmers are retiring, and there is a much smaller generation of young farmers to replace them. And global investment for agriculture land is on the rise, which will push some family farmers off the land in favor of industrial consolidation. And beyond that, farmland is being lost to competing land uses. One acre is lost every minute to development. And to help navigate some of these issues, and as an example of solutions that are being developed and implemented to fight against these trends, we are joined by Christy Alessandro, who we introduced in episode 16. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you very much, Daniel. It's great to be here. And we are also joined by Ian McSweeney. Ian is the Organizational Director of Agrarian Trust, which we'll be talking about in detail. 
He is founder of Farmland Consulting, and he recently served as the executive director of the Russell Foundation, where through his work, over 12,000 acres were protected in over 100 farmland projects, and over $17 million was raised to benefit local agrarian communities. Ian has been recognized as a 40 under 40 leader in New Hampshire and has been selected for the Leadership Institute at Food Solutions New England. Ian, thank you for joining us and welcome to Ashes Ashes. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. So, did you grow up in New Hampshire? No, I, I grew up in New England, though. I grew up south of Boston in Massachusetts in what was, when I was young, a pretty rural community um, and kind of small farms still existed, uh-huh. but now is just suburbs of Boston. How did you feel seeing some of those changes take place to this rural community that you grew up in? Well, uh, so a mix. So some of it took place after I left. After I left for college, the commuter rail reconnected back to South Shore of Massachusetts, and that drove a lot of growth, as with kind of the real estate bubble at the time. Uh, But prior to that, the loss was a little more gradual of farmland, but there was some significant farms that I was connected to kind of right behind my parents' house where I grew up, and then right across the street from grandparents' house, that really the loss of those farms uh, was impactful and, and thought there must be a different way to find an exiting farmer to gain equity, uh, financial equity for their retirement, for health care, for their future needs, and to allow next generation farmer to get access to that it doesn't just have to be selling out for development and land conversion and extraction goals to bring about the financial needs there. So that's that kind of those situations helped kind of motivate me to do what I do now. So you mentioned um, farmers building equity in their land. And I'm a little curious about your early work because after developing outdoor-based education as a social worker, you formed a real estate brokerage company that prioritized conservation and agricultural community. Was that difficult to do? Because I imagine there's a lot of conflicting incentives when it comes to real estate development, buying and selling land, and the goals of conservation. Yeah, there there definitely are. You know, it's people sit in different camps around both development, active agriculture in many cases, and land conservation in its kind of historical pure sense of protecting the land from human impacts. So it was trying to bring those three groups and interests together which was difficult at times, but I I found success in the fact that development approvals in New England context are taken forward on a town-by-town basis, and so each town has different regulations and process, and the time and skill to navigate those just adds cost for developers. So if they could reduce costs by forming allies up front with my help, allies with conservation and agricultural communities, saving costs in their approval process mm-hmm. and expediting their time to market, you know, it really could create a compromise that provided a benefit for all sides. Did you have a lot of models to learn from as you were doing this work or did you kind of have to learn as you went? Had to learn as I went, but there's a lot more interest now in partnering agriculture with development and some conservation. When I started, there was not those models. uh, You know, there was a few out there, but not many. And really, as I mentioned, that New England's home rule, where each town has its own regulations and process, and then just around the country, that you know, each land 
uh, acres of land, parcel of land is distinct in many ways so that it's not a approach that can just right. be replicated across the landscape uh-huh. in a purposeful and mindful way that it takes a uh, real connection to land and local community in place to create a beneficial project for all. Now that's something I, I was really curious to ask you at some point, maybe when we get into agrarian trust work, is is how you replicate these things and how much you have to rely on local expertise and knowledge to put some of these practices into place for conserving land and building resilient communities. But uh, we'll get to that. So this passion that you have for conservation and farm access and building resilient communities, I'm kind of curious where that came from. Do you think it was just from seeing those suburban environments take over your rural home? Or was there something else you saw that really made you realize the need to advocate for these issues of conservation and farmland access? Yeah, a combination. So it was those early childhood experiences that were impactful and created a need to do this work. But then it's, I've always had a goal to connect and work with and help people through their life journey. And I've found that our loss of human connection to each other, human connection to soil, to food, to community, loss of community in general is just really something from kind of when I was young growing up to now having kids and seeing that and seeing the difference in how our towns, communities, and connections are. There's there's this huge uh, void that we really need to address as a culture to reconnect in those ways. And much of the work around uh, pure land conservation, say, is siloed in protection of land, and it doesn't really connect with community and people in the way that it can. Yeah. Uh, and and the same could be said for especially kind of big ag, the way that's headed, and you know it's removing people and communities from the land to move into simply, you know, monoculture across the landscape. So, you know, how do we kind of create those connections that have been lost? And seeing the breakdown of those over my life has really helped to motivate me to create some alternative. That's something that personally I've been learning about just recently that's really become something I think about all the time is how our economy, how our society breaks communities down, how things get siloed off into their constituent parts and and how we lose this connection to our lands. that I've actually been talking a lot to my friends and my family about the importance of agriculture and farming. And it's to be honest, the conversation is a little foreign to them because we grew up here in Atlanta in a city in a suburban um, environment, and they don't really understand why I'm talking about farming. I've never farmed before, but it's just become so obvious to me that that is the foundation of how we as a society can even survive, and especially the communities around that is super important. Yeah, oh, it completely is. That that's you know that agriculture, the foundings of our culture, is based on that, and and something that a experience that I had about a decade ago when I got started with uh, the Russell Foundation a couple of years in was connecting and beginning my work with a farm that's local in southern New Hampshire. This farm, the Temple Wilton Community Farm. So the Temple Wilton Community Farm was one of the first two CSA farms in the country. Started in 1984 with another farm, Indian Line Farm in Western Massachusetts. So 1984, there were two CSA operating farms in this country. Now, at least in 2015, USDA had that figure at about 14,000. Um, CSA being community supported agriculture, right? Yeah. Yep. 
So that's huge growth in a business sector. And, you know, from 1984 to today, many other measures of community health and connectivity have declined and, you know, are eroding very quickly. And our health as humans, our health as society is suffering from those things. But, you know, when you look at the success of CSAs and farmers markets have had similar growth trajectory as well, they found a different way, a different model to connect with community that, that's really proven very effective. But then when you dig a little deeper, they're depending upon the health of community to support the farm. And if everything else around a community is suffering, it's a very tenuous situation these farms have put themselves in because mm -hmm. of the lack of health in other aspects of community. So how do we dig deeper into that to support community? And, they, and that's something we can touch more on with agrarian trust work. Absolutely. So, Ian, you're the director or the organizational director of Agrarian Trust. And Agrarian Trust was co-founded by the Shoemaker Institute for New Economics and the Greenhorns. Can you tell us a little bit about what these two organizations do and what they are? Yeah, glad to. So, yeah, the Schumacher Center for New Economics and the Greenhorns. So really, Agrarian Trust was a vision and carried forward by an individual, Severin Fleming, who also co-founded National Young Farmers Coalition, uh, Farm Hack, and then Greenhorns. And the Greenhorns has long been kind of an advocacy, communications, outreach, kind of movement building organization to raise the issue around the need for national awareness of age of farmers, transition of farmland, and the need for next generation farmers to have the skills, support, community, and access to land they need. The Schumacher Center for New Economics has long been a cultural leader based in Berkshires of Massachusetts, but in bringing about new forms of community and economic models of success. They created things like the Berkshires, a community-based currency. They co-created the CSA movement that the other farm, the Indian Line Farm, was developed out of and in partnership with the Schumacher Center. So they've long kind of cultivated these ideas. And Agrarian Trust was brought about as a national nonprofit land trust that could develop models and then live into activating these models as a land-holding structure. Uh -huh. and a land-holding structure to bring about the transition of farmland from current generation who's exiting to next generation of farmers who needs access and also to hold that land for common benefit. So moving it out of the commodity marketplace where it's solely seen as its highest and best value, which in most parts of the country is not tied to agriculture. So how do you kind of bring it outside of that market forces in a way that future transitions of that land does not depend upon significant financial resources to, you know, allow exiting farmer to have the equity they need and incoming farmer to get the access. 
presently the value of that farmland is so significant and people's exiting farmers' wealth is tied up in that land that access to land is noted as the biggest obstacle for new farmers from American Farm Bureau, from National Young Farmers, from other national surveys, that they don't have the money to afford the land. And at the same time, these exiting farmers, all their money that they need for retirement, for health care, for the rest of their life is tied up in the land. So how do you create a different model that removes that equity from the land, the land being the development value of land, in a way that facilitates better long-term stewardship of the land in the future? Right. So land access, that's a huge issue. It's a monumental issue, and it needs as much help as it can get. But there are a lot of conservation groups and uh, land trusts in the country. Were there needs not being met by these other organizations that kind of spurred the creation of agrarian trust? Are there some innovations taking place in agrarian trust? Or is the goal to simply expand the number of people working on this issue? So this kind of gets into your other question from earlier around kind of how to consider the local needs for a national organization. There are a lot of land conservation organizations across the country. The vast majority of those are clustered in certain areas. Like we in a small state of New Hampshire have over 40 land trusts working in the state. There's states in in the middle of our country, in the agricultural belt of our country that don't, you know, have a single land trust working there. That the 40 land trusts we have here is more than regions of our country have. So the Northeast, the West Coast, areas clustered around wealthier urban centers in the country have a lot more presence of land conservation groups than other parts of the country. So there's a huge disparity around where land trusts work and where they don't. So that's one factor to consider. And then there's real differences in the mission and priorities of land trusts and how they work. So really, agrarian trust goals would differ uh, depending where we work. But being a national organization, our focus would be to look at the landscape across the country and see where we can work to bring about innovation and bring about support. So, you know, it's how do we fit in is part of the question. And then really what other land trusts are not doing, that agrarian trust is moving to innovate and create new models around is looking at the picture holistically, that it's we need to protect the agricultural land so it is not lost, protecting it from development, extraction, conversion. That is where most land trusts stop. They permanently protect the land with a conservation easement, and then it won't be lost to development. So their work is done. They leave the rest to individual families on the ground and private citizens owning the land to do the rest. But we agrarian trust feel that the farmland has to be protected. So we prohibit those uses, development, extraction, conversion uses. But then we really need to address who owns that land and how it is transferred from existing generation to the next, how that land is stewarded long-term. The agricultural soils are uh, very important for a variety of reasons, for food, for carbon sequestration, for ecological health. The, The conservation easement protects them from being bulldozed off and sold. It protects them from being covered over in asphalt, but 
except for a, a few, a few that I could count on one hand. The vast majority of land trusts are not talking about soil health and creating requirements around how that soil is actually stewarded. So, you know, what inputs go into the soil, what organic matter is built in the soil, the microbes in the soil, those are critically important. Right. Uh, and that is part of the conservation of this resource, we agrarian trust feel. And really to get at that, we need to protect the land with easement, but we also need to create a community-based ownership model where the community is invested and with agrarian trust and others help, we value things like soil health. We value things like, you know, the agricultural enterprises, human connection to soil, education, community building, these things that go beyond land conservation. I think that's really important. And I want to jump into the nuts and bolts of how your organization is doing that. Um, but before we do that, I think it's important to highlight some of these big issues in agriculture and in this farmland access that is the whole reason for your work in the first place. And as long as we're talking about land access and the obstacles to land access, obviously a huge part of that is the price of land. So what do you think are some of the biggest threats to affordable farmland in terms of prices? Is it the financial speculation of institutional investors or buy and hold investors, or is it the push to develop land into office buildings, or are there some other factors going on? Yeah, so it's a mix of factors, and it depends where in the country the land is located. In the Northeast, for example, or around a lot of urban areas and highly developed areas, the cost of land is driven by development pressures. So, for example, something close to home for me in the small state of New Hampshire, southern part of the state where I am is less than an hour to Boston. The seacoast of New Hampshire is even closer to Boston and very desirable to live in. An acre of land there, an acre of farmland with road frontage that's good soils can be forty, fifty thousand dollars for an acre of land there. In the north part of New Hampshire that's not commutable to Boston has very few economic opportunities. An acre of the same type of farmland with the same road frontage and characteristics can be eight hundred to a thousand dollars an acre. So some parts of the country, development is definitely driving that valuation. Other parts of the country, the Midwest, there's huge outside money coming in and consolidation of agricultural land for larger and larger corporate interests and investment interests there. So that's driving up prices there. And there's a loss of people. The land in the Midwest is being depopulated. Towns are being lost of people. So there's no way for the smaller farm to afford that. By living in a community, there's loss of communities in general there. So it's really depends depends on the part of the country, but there's huge factors, development, outside money, aggregation of lands, other speculation for future uh, uses for those, and natural resource extraction. There's all these things that are not uh, related to agriculture that are driving the value of agricultural land. Yeah, I read a report by the Oakland Institute about how institutional investment is driving up prices for land, and it's I think it's so ironic and a little bit tragic that a lot of institutional investors are pushing into agricultural land because it, in a way, is very resilient against financial shocks. 
But in this process of gobbling up the land, they're destroying what could be sustainable communities, uh, sustainable agriculture, which itself is what protects communities from these financial shocks. It's what protects people. It gives them food security. So in a way, the institutional push for safety in agricultural land is creating insecurity and, and breaking down communities among the people who actually live there. Right. Yeah. Concerning. And you mentioned the way we value land has a big part of this. Um, what's the difference between agricultural use value and the real estate value of land? And how does this create problems? Well, so an appraisal of land, an appraisal needed for acquisition of land, for financing of land, will determine the value of land based on the highest and best use. And the highest and best is defined as what will make the most financial returns off that land. And highest financial return in the immediate short-term, not long-term vision. So that looks at what can be extracted from or developed on the land, in most cases, will generate a higher return than kind of a long-term investment in soil health and building of sustainable farming operation. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of factors, but it's a struggle to farm because the economics don't work because we don't pay the true cost of food to begin with. So when we're not even paying the true cost of food, the farmer struggles to make a living. The per acre revenue on an acre of farmland actively farmed is quite low in comparison to the per acre value if that acre or half an acre can be a house lot or there's ability to immediately extract those resources, sell them to the highest bidder and ignore the environmental impacts that take place. A farmer cannot ignore the environmental impacts, right? They have to factor in maintaining healthy environment and investing in environment to have a sustainable operation there. Mm -hmm. But any development, extraction, conversion uses of land doesn't have to factor in environmental impacts in any way. They're just selling whatever they can off the land for the highest bidder and then moving on to the next project. So Ian, is it possible that there's some sort of system that either Agrarian Trust is working on or maybe somebody else is pioneering that might allow the farmer to have the best of all these scenarios? I mean, could they build soil, make money in the short term, but then also have a plan set up for some sort of long-term sustainability? Yeah, well, so a, a couple of factors. So, you know, one is more of a hope and a vision that doesn't exist now, but there's some uh, movement towards this in California, and there's been some kind of efforts towards this in Vermont. But, you know, can we put a value on soil health, on carbon sequestration? Can we use that in some carbon market that can generate revenue that then could pay the farmer for, you know, doing desired and healthy management and stewardship of the land. So that would be one way to generate some revenue that then could pay farmer for uh, being a good steward of the land. But that does not exist presently. There are some models that exist for carbon sequestration in timber markets, and that's you know worked, and that's created a whole uh, timberland investment movement where there's companies and investment organizations that are focused on owning large tracts of forest land and are able to be uh, good stewards of that land because there's financial returns from sequestering carbon in a healthy forest, but we don't have that on the soil side. 
right now, but that would be great to get to that point. What we Agrarian Trust are moving to do is to, just as I mentioned earlier, to remove the market value of that land, the farmland, by moving the farmland into a community ownership structure, which we can discuss more soon, but moving it into a community ownership structure where then the cost and burdens of ownership no longer sit with individual farmers to cover that debt service and be responsible for that. And they're simply covering and responsible for being good stewards of the land and being a good, viable, and sustainable farming enterprise and letting value grow in those two, in the farm business enterprise and in the ecological health of the soil and the environment. And then using that value as what the exiting farmer would gain as equity and then cash out in the future and what the entering farmer would compensate for and creating a kind of a staggered payment system so it's it can work as retirement for exiting farmer and it can work as a reasonable investment in for incoming farmer. That seems really cool. Um, why don't we just get into the agrarian trust and what you're doing? I love the three-pronged mission of the organization, which is to spread awareness of land access issues and some of the solutions that you have come up with. Also, building networks of and models for the benefit of agriculture stakeholders, and then actively protecting and transferring land to those who can take care of it. So I want to ask you, Ian, a little bit how Agrarian Trust is achieving these goals. How are you spreading awareness of these land access issues and who is your target audience? So Agrarian Trust, uh, being a newer organization, we've spent time building the organizational structure and raising awareness of the issue. Uh, We've had two national convenings over the last few years, these Our Land convenings, which have brought together several hundred people to raise the issue there. I've watched a few videos from those and I really enjoyed them. When's the next one going to be? So the next one we're planning for early 2019 in the southeastern United States. Oh, that's where I'll be. So I'm definitely going to come to that. Yeah. So local for the two of you. And to really drill into local issues there to focus on land reparation and other underlying issues and bring together the next symposium. So that's one area. Partnering with Greenhorns around the new Farmer's Almanac around a series of short videos, our land films, also a, a larger film series, Up Up Film Fest. So carrying those things forward, but we really feel our target audience for this are the existing landowners and many landowners being the land trusts in the conservation world, other nonprofit owners. One example would be faith communities. We just carried out in partnership with Greenhorns and others a faith lands gathering in California that brought together faith leaders from around the country from many different faiths, all with an interest in sustainable agriculture and bringing forward these faith communities' land holdings into real deep community benefit by conveying them into community ownership, really building community in a new way. So that's more on that can be found at agrariantrust.org backslash faithlands. But so really trying to tap into existing communities that own significant farmland. That's the place to make the difference. 
that if we create some models and then live into those models, that these are the communities that are ready and able to adopt them on a much larger scale. And of course, the third goal of your organization is to buy, hold, and permanently protect farmland in the U.S. through what you call the commons-based approach and to offer tools and networks for farmers to work that land. So I'm really curious about this part of the work, the actual holding of land, permanently protecting it. So how does Agrarian Trust acquire land in the first place? Yeah, so we are presently setting up structures. So we are partnered with the Sustainable Economies Law Center, who is providing legal research support and guidance as we create these structures. So these landholding structures and investment structures are a combination of Agrarian Trust being the national 501c3 nonprofit. We are then going to create localized 501c2 farm commons organizations. So these localized farm commons organizations will be specific to regions around the country. They'll be connected to agrarian trust, but have representation and autonomy for that local community, the community being the farmers, the the organizations involved in farmland ownership and food systems work and community building will be part of those organizations. And those organizations will own the farmland. And those organizations in partnership with Agrarian Trust, the 51C3, will solicit dollars in. So both fundraise dollars in and then small-scale community investment dollars in. So raising money from all who have an interest uh-huh. in being investor and owner in a in a model that's, you know, as we touched on the community-supported agriculture, that is really community coming together, investing upfront, giving their money to a farm. So the farm then has money for the operations during that year. And then both the community of investors and the community of farmers sharing the risks and rewards of the farm production for that year. So what we're looking to do is a similar model, uh, but around land ownership on a much longer term scale where the community comes together, invests money in, creates a community-supported land tenure model where, where they are investors and owners through this 501c2, and they're then holding the farmland in a long-term relationship and their return on investment is social and environmental. So it's the increased soil health, it's the improvements to the ecology, it's the access to local food, it's community health and community engagement, education, other aspects like that that have great value beyond financial returns. It is an investment, though, so it'll have a term to it. And at the end of that, they would get their initial investment back. So it's cycling in new investors over time as well. But that's where the capital will be raised from, is both philanthropic dollars and from the community investment structure. And then they'll go into these localized 501c2s that'll own the land and engage in tenure relationship with the farmers in a way that is needed and meaningful for that localized area. So it'll look differently as we touched on across the country, but that is the basic structure to it. 
Okay. And I imagine you have to have a lot of partners around the country who are tied to those local conditions, who understand the local conditions. I mean, do you have attorneys who can help put these deals together? Yes. You know, the Sustainable Economies Law Center is a group of attorneys based in Oakland, but we do have other partnerships with attorneys and other organizations around the country. And really where where we have the most robust partnerships is where we are first going to launch these localized farm commons, 501c2s. And then by developing success with those, we can cultivate new relationships and new partnerships with those we need to launch into a new part of the country. So we're being very strategic in where we first start and how many we start. And with the thought of as we build momentum and awareness, we can then launch into new areas as well. You also mentioned long-term and permanently protecting, I don't know if you said permanently protecting the land, but I think that's one of the goals. And I'm curious, how do you make sure that these types of partnerships stick around in the long-term? Because something I learned visiting Chris's farm is how long it takes and how much patience you have to have in order to build good soil, in order to start seeing big returns on these sustainable methods. How do you make sure that 50 years down the road, a developer with tons of money who comes into the area and sees an opportunity for a mixed-use retail project can't just use the money and pressure to dismantle these things and develop the land after so much work has been put into it? Yeah, and that's where the partnership with existing land trusts and the conservation work they do around protecting land with conservation easements. So that is a permanent protection measure that is layered on top of land ownership. It kind of separates some of the rights of ownership from the the deed and is then held by this land trust that is permanently enforcing against land conversion, extraction, degradation on the land. So, you know, partnering with existing land trusts would hold conservation easements on the land is critical to this work where they exist, where they don't exist, because, you know, there are parts of the country where they don't exist. As I mentioned, it's building capacity for that. So developing new partnerships, expanding the work of existing land trusts into new geographic areas so they can take on those roles. And the reality that until we build capacity in certain areas, we being the collective we and all the organizations needed to bring this about, We can't step in and work everywhere because there's not capacity there. So we need to build that capacity to have the organizations and the structures in place to fully protect the land, own the land, and then support the farm enterprises on the land to make this possible. Conservation easements are really interesting to me. So the way I understand it is if I own land, let's say it's my house. Well, I have a assortment of rights that come along with owning that land. I have the right to build a shed on it if I want to. I have the right to dig a hole in my backyard. And if I find any gold down there, I have the right to own it. And so we have this bundle of rights when we own a piece of land. And the way I understand it is a conservation easement is essentially me selling one of those rights. It could be my right to sell it to a developer of retail property, for example. It could be my right to destroy the soil. And in selling that right to the land trust, it's now held there and prevents me from doing something that that would otherwise destroy the land. Is that basically how it works? But there's a lot of variety in ways that you can use and implement conservation easements. 
Yeah, that is basically how it works. That right. As a landowner, you have the bundle of rights, as you're talking about. In the western part of our country, those rights were severed long ago in that most landowners do not acquire their water rights or their mineral rights when they're buying the land in the west part of this country. Because you you think about the gold rush, say, for example, that people migrated west in search of gold, and so they were really interested in solely the mineral rights there. Right. but didn't really care much about the land ownership. So, you know, there's different points in our history that led to and necessitated the need to separate those rights out in the western part of this country. In the east, we, in general, when we buy a piece of land, we hold all those rights unless either a prior owner has separated them or we decide to. So most easements are when someone acquires a right on someone else's land, they then have that active right to do something. The conservation easement, to be a qualified conservation easement, it can only be acquired and owned by qualified entities. So these nonprofit land trusts or a town, county, state, federal government, some part of government that is charged with protecting land. So one of those qualified entities acquires the right And then what they're doing is permanently prohibiting that right from ever being used. And what they then do is enforce against anyone using it. So if you sell the right to develop your land beyond the house that sits on it, and then you, next year's out, decide to build another house, they're then required to enforce that. Yeah, and enforce that. So they're acquiring rights that then they're really just enforcing against those rights ever being exercised to get on the land. So we're talking about taking away or selling the rights to do something on a property. But you mentioned how important it is to build communities, these communities that benefit from the use of a land in a sustainable way. And so If you want to encourage a farm or a community like that, you need the land to actually be used, right? So do you ever have to go beyond just restricting certain things to actually saying, okay, if you own this land, you also have to use it. You have to farm it. You have to produce food and you have to do that in a sustainable way. Yeah. So that is what agrarian trust endeavors to do. And that's what these models will bring about. This is the innovation that agrarian trust is doing. Yeah, that's the innovation that there's really, you know, land conservation in general is acquiring these conservation easements and prohibiting uses on the land. But then the farmland might go fallow. It might grow up into trees. It might be conventional ag with chemical inputs on the ground. You know, there's a variety of things that could be even with a conservation easement on it, so long as you're not violating that conservation easement, that if you sold off the development rights, as long as it is not you know, a strip mall, a subdivision, uh, something of that nature, you're meeting the terms of that conservation easement and you're not in violation of the rights you no longer own. But it's not getting into this, how the land is actually used. So that's where we agrarian trust, partnering with existing land trusts to place an easement on land, because then it protects it from that 50 years from now, if a developer with money comes in and tries to pressure, those development rights are forever severed from the land. It also lowers the cost of land. As we discussed, one of the primary factors that drives monetary value of agricultural land is development pressure. So if you separate those development rights, you've significantly lowered the value of that land. 
So conservation easement, very important. That's the foundation of the work and step one. But then really owning the land in that 501c2 farm commons can say the types of agriculture, the types of community engagement, education, other aspects that are part of Agrarian Trust's mission and really critical to meeting community and cultural needs. So I actually worked with a land trust, and something I noticed was that there was sort of a divorce between agriculture and conservation. So for instance, we were putting in community gardens and urban plots to work towards building food security in local communities. But on the conservation side of things, there were substantially larger tracts of land that were held in conservation easements owned by the land trust and not held in private ownership. And it seemed like the extent of the activity on these lands was to basically spray herbicide for invasive species. So what I'm wondering is, is there a way to potentially bring agriculture into harmony with conservation and bridge this gap? It seems like the focus was mostly on annual gardening on small urban plots, which don't get me wrong, is a huge tool for bringing awareness to people about how to grow food and then actually getting them access to that fresh food in urban areas. But all this land that's being held in conservation easement seems to me like massively untapped potential. And so I'm thinking things like agroforestry, holistic management of livestock, on-site carbon-based resources such as fallen trees. So Ian, in your opinion, is there feasibility or even profitability in some of these systems? Oh, yeah. Yeah, com- completely. And and that's why, you know, the stakeholders, part of the stakeholders for agrarian trust are existing land trusts because existing land trusts own either whole easements on quite a bit of farmland or own farmland. And in vast majority of the cases are prohibiting those development conversion, but really not doing much more beyond that. So let them and encourage them and appreciate them doing that work because that is foundation. But how do you go beyond that to really engage in the land management and stewardship in a way that's meaningful for true ecological health, soil building, community building, health of all the above? So it takes multiple organizations to accomplish that. There's really very few who can do it all. And Agrarian Trust does not endeavor to do it all. We we endeavor to create a structure that in partnership with existing land trusts and others, we can go much deeper than the work presently does. Along the same line of giving farmers access to land, what about giving them access to things like, say, a commercial kitchen space for processing value-added goods or an inspected processing facility for poultry or other livestock? So in my farming model, I use chickens to prepare garden spaces and to build really rich compost in record time. But the feasibility of scaling this type of poultry-based system or another model is really dependent on being able to make money as you scale it. And since there's virtually no processing facilities for poultry, in my state, do you think there's potential for some type of vertical integration that would allow for making money off of building this really amazing soil? Um, Maybe it could even look like having an egg washing machine with a walk-in cooler or having a certified kitchen for making jams and sauces and other value-added items. Yeah, there's possibility of that. It's capital intensive. It's dealing with present systems that exist. But yeah, there's possibilities. There's a co-worker, Jamie Pottern, who's at the Grand Trust, who I've worked with for years. 
She's also at Mount Grace Land Trust in Massachusetts. Mount Grace Land Trust, they protect and own farmland, but they saw the need to do more. They acquired a building to build a cooperative food market in. They partnered with farm incubator and educational centers to help train farms as well. So it's how do we go beyond and through partnership create capacity to go beyond the work that exists to think about the whole system and how do we engage in the whole system work to bring about change. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. That's great. I want to ask you about financing because when it comes to accessing land, even if you can get it to an affordable level through conservation easements and other things that can bring it down to its agricultural value, you still have a lot of people who want to get into farming. They're new. They're maybe a young farmer. And they may not have very much income. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of assets to use as collateral for loans. Is there an opportunity in this commons-based approach that you talked about where you partner investors with landowners and farmers or some of these people who would make great farmers but just have no access to credit to get some kind of alternative financing? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, So our focus with Agrarian Trust is these localized farm commons would own the land and then provide secure lease tenure out. And security uh, length of time differs state to state, what is allowed for a lease agreement, but, you know, as long as is allowed. So in some states around the country, that would be 99 years with a rolling renewal. So it's pretty close to permanent ownership without the permanent ownership. And if that lease also provides equity building in the other ways around the farm business enterprise, around social and and environmental markers of growth and success, then the farmer can build equity and grow the business without having to take on the acquisition costs and have a lease arrangement that would be much lower cost of entry than any purchase cost and really favor their building the business and environmental investments in lieu of lease payments. They could be investing in the business and in the soil and community engagement. So that's the way we, Agrarian Trust, will work is is to lower the barrier of entry by partnering with other land trusts to do the easements to lower the value than agrarian trust taking on the financing to acquire the land and then providing out very low cost or without cost leases with agreements of other types of farm investments that benefit the whole and give these farmers uh, you know long-term land security that they can operate on the farm for their whole career. You know, 99 years is going to be longer than anyone's career. So they then have an asset at the end they can sell, they could pass down to their children. So that's how we're working. There are others, some farmland investment organizations, some better than others, better being kind of considering and prioritizing farmer equity and priorities and soil health. But there are some farmland investment organizations that are being that matchmaker of providing upfront uh, capital, either through connecting wealthy individuals or organizations or raising money to acquire land and then giving farmers a path to acquire that land. And there's more interest and growth in that sector that's not 
what we're intending to do, though, what we're intending to do is this permanent ownership by this localized farm commons entity and then a long-term, long being as long as possible given state laws, a long-term secure 10-year lease arrangement on the land for farmer. Very interesting. Um, and and real quick, kind of off top, um, you did mention the attorneys, the, um, I think you mentioned the Sustainable Economies Law Center. Is this part of the Agrarian Lawyer Network that is on your website about connecting people with attorneys? And if someone out there is an attorney or a lawyer that works with land and wants to be a part of helping people to implement these models, can they do that? Can they join this Agrarian Lawyer Network and what's all involved in that and how would they get involved? Yeah, yeah, so good question. So the Agrarian Lawyers Network is a couple things. So it's it's one is building out these models that we're discussing around localized farm commons and then being completely transparent in a way that is educational and awareness building in that as we develop these models, we will share them out, provide workshops, post everything on our website, provide educational opportunities through this Agrarian Lawyers Network for and by the attorneys and legal organizations involved to train and raise awareness around the country of these models and our models and some other models that we see are innovative around the world. There's some great similar type models that have been going on for a number of years in Europe, and that's part of what we're modeling our farm common structure around. We have links to those on our website as well. But to sort of share these models out as part of the Agrarian Lawyers Network, another part is to bring together this network of lawyers around the country because the Sustainable Economies Law Center is California-based. The others mentioned there are, you know, there's a conservation law foundation that's in Boston and Vermont Law School and others. So there's some that are kind of founding members of this Agrarian Lawyers Network but it does not reach every state in the country and every state has its own laws. So we're really trying to build out a network of attorneys who can you know, provide support to people in every state and be licensed and understand the laws of every state. So those needing help, farmland owners, farmers, others involved can get help. And for attorneys who, who want to engage in the work, to connect into the Agrarian Lawyers Network. And so the Agrarian Lawyers Network is a way to connect people with attorneys around the country. They're not doing pro bono work, right? This would be a way to connect clients with attorneys? Correct, yeah. So a way to connect people with attorneys around the country. Also, the sharing of these models and the template documents and structures so people can just pick up these documents either from Grain Lawyers Network or other organizations. We are building out kind of a resource library for this now that you can go on and take models and documents and structures, download them, and then connect with local attorney to find those for state law where you are. So when a lot of people think about agriculture, obviously they think of rural communities, places outside the city. But are there a lot of opportunities in urban farming and agriculture in urban communities? And does Agrarian Trust work with groups doing that type of work? Yeah, so there's huge opportunity in urban areas. 
more of the rural American image of agriculture is now, as we discussed, devoid of people. It's large aggregated sites farmed from the seat of a tractor yeah. and not really growing food for people and not connecting people with land and food. So yeah, urban agriculture in vacant lots, rooftops, farmlands uh, within close proximity to urban areas, it's a huge opportunity there. And that's another area that land conservation groups and land trusts in general are really not focused. There's a handful that are, but, you know, and there's some interest in the kind of urban gardens, um, but very little interest in production agriculture to feed people in urban areas. There's a great organization, the Urban Farm Institute uh, in Boston. They're the only urban land trust focused on land access, food production, to feed the people who live in that area around the country. So there's there's huge need and opportunity to engage in that work. One big issue that comes up when you're talking about urban farming is uh, a lot of urban soil is contaminated with lead. Yeah, I just talked to someone in Atlanta who works with parks and, and helps build parks here in Atlanta, and they just spent $350,000 or whatever it was to clean up a little bit of lead in the soil and then assume liability because they're now transporting that lead somewhere. And if, if something happens to it, they're now on the hook. I imagine that that's a pretty big deterrent for, especially if we're talking about nonprofit organizations who have limited funds to try and tackle that issue. Oh, it, it definitely is. And, and the reality is, you know, as, as we lose farmland for development, the farmland soils are bulldozed up and trucked off and sold elsewhere that a lot of times in urban areas, the ground simply has to be capped and you're growing in raised beds with soil brought in from elsewhere. But, you know, the location for the urban agriculture, the access to sun and water and community are the benefits there. But yeah, growing in the ground uh, is not a possibility of any urban centers. Mm. We discussed heat last week and how because of climate change, some regions of the world are going to become more humid. Some are going to become more dry and a lot of places are going to get hotter. And these changes are going to have an impact on our ability to grow crops in certain places. And I'm curious, when it comes to determining where to conserve land and provide long-term access for farmers, do you think that climate change is considered enough in terms of how it might change the local conditions of a place going forward? No, like we, you know, we're, we're still on a, on a national stage. We are debating whether climate change is real. So we're not even at the point of understanding the reality that is around us every day. That is, you know, any farmer will tell you it's, it's real in the extreme weather events and the change in seasons. But we kind of culturally and where our priorities are are not there. So, yeah, we, we need to focus more on that. A great number of urban development areas are in parts of the country that, that lack water yeah. and other natural resources. And we're far exceeding the natural capacity to support the people that live in those areas. So. Right. That's going to drive up the cost of land even more in some areas. That's going to drive up the cost of water and other resources uh, in other areas. So part of that answer is how do we acquire, protect, and ensure that farmland is going to be available for production in areas because of the changing climate and how that is going to influence migration of people 
and growth and development and cost of land. But then how do we take out the burden of ownership to allow farmers to invest in things that build in resilience and mitigation for climate events? So building organic matter and soil, building in adequate watering infrastructure, high tunnels, greenhouses, row covers, all these things that can help either bring in uh, water where needed or reduce these severe rain events from washing out crops that can moderate temperature swings that exist now that we, the last two years here in New Hampshire, we've had snow end of April, early May that's killed a lot of early season crops people put out or a lot of fruit tree flowering. So we've had big losses in the Northeast because of that. So farmers need to have more money to invest in their farm enterprises to mitigate against climate change and extreme weather events. Yeah. And one way to do that is to reduce the cost of land ownership to those farmers. So I was wondering, in line with that, Ian, you mentioned obviously before that the price of farmland in urban areas is much higher than in some of these rural areas. So is there a rough percentage as far as the breakdown of what you guys are looking to invest in uh, in terms of urban centers versus suburban areas versus even rural settings? Well, so, so really what's driving the priorities of where we focus initial farm commons will be where there's a significant need and at the same time there's community interest and support and community being farmers, eaters who value local farms, other organizations that are engaged and support the work, whether it's land trusts to conserve the land with easements, food systems organizations to support other aspects of the food system. But where can we engage in the work that will have partners who are receptive to our involvement and can collaborate in a way to amplify the work and really think about the whole and engage in the whole picture of things? What we're doing right now is focusing on four, maybe six localized areas that we're building out these models first. So we're less focused on kind of cost of land, other factors like that, just because we're starting small enough now that we want to step into areas where, where we have support and where we can create significant benefit through the impact we create on the ground. When speaking about going forward, what are you most excited for in terms of the future of Agrarian Trust? Do you have any new projects or initiatives planned? So really most excited to bring about these localized farm commons and most excited for uh, we're, we're exploring and, and developing, creating some of these in Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia area and really excited about that. There's a huge need there. There's lack of others doing any aspects of this work there and there's great agricultural communities there in need of partnerships and collaborations to bring about a greater good. So yeah, real excited for that. Real excited too that we're exploring different fundraising tools, some with existing online crowdsource investment entities and funders to collaborate in a way to focus some of their work on our mission and our goals around bringing about these localized farm communities. So, you know, raising significant money in partnership with them to really create this impact on the ground is exciting. Well, I'm certainly excited to see the change that y'all make. And for anybody who's listening, a farmer or a landowner or someone who works in a land trust and 
they're fully on board with the mission. Uh, they want to get involved. Maybe it's a farmer who wants to um, participate in, in one of these models. What's the next step? How can they be a part of what Agrarian Trust is doing? How can they be informed of all the things that y'all are doing and the changes taking place? Yeah, well, reach out and connect. Be in touch with me at ian at agrariantrust.org. Go on our website, agrariantrust.org. We're just in the process of revamping the website as we speak, so we'll have a lot more content coming soon. You already have so many resources on there. I've spent a few hours going through different things on the website, and I don't think I even made a dent in all the resources and reports that you have on there. Yeah, well, that's the we really want to be and have done a great job of raising the issue and sharing what exists, but really need to now deeply dive into the work at hand and to structure some of that and add to some of that content in a way that when you are a farmer, it's easy for you to navigate and find what you need and create an understanding of new models and who to connect with and why. On a website, take a look, email me, be in touch. Would love to connect and talk to anyone interested. Also, Chris, I'll pick you up for our land symposium in the Southeast. We just got to get David to come down from New York and then we'll make a party out of it. (laughs) All right. That sounds great. I'd really Is there anything else, Ian, that you think our listeners should know? Yeah, just get in touch, go on a website, sign up for our newsletter, go on the Facebook page, like the page, uh, just you know, get connected and start a conversation. Well, thank you, both of you. Thank you for reaching out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian, and thank you, Daniel. It was great talking with y'all. Bye. So, David, welcome back. Happy to be back, Daniel. Are you ready to talk a little bad news some more? That's why I'm here, Daniel. Well, David, I think we don't have that much bad news. I actually really enjoyed speaking with Ian, and there was a couple things that Ian talked about that stuck out to me. One of the first things that really captured my attention was when he said that the health of sustainable farms depends on the health of the community that they serve. I think this is something that we tend to overlook when we talk about sustainable agriculture, when we talk about organic foods is that these systems cannot exist without a community that actually supports them. Because you cannot have a sustainable farm if these farms have to integrate with an industrial economy in order to profit, in order to pay back exorbitant loans. Without a community who can support these farms and help buy into a local economy, you just can't have them. And as we've talked about, and as we're going to continue to talk about, without sustainable farms and local communities, we can't fight back against the destructive forces of industrial agriculture. We need healthy communities. And Daniel, I think we can carry that idea past just industrial agriculture, but really to our entire industrialized economy. Yes, there are many things in our economy in which we depend on this industrialization, but the extent and the consumerism that goes along with it are what gets us into these messes, for lack of a better word, in the first place. And any sort of future that envisions a uh, alternative to this heavy production, heavy consumption with no eye to sustainability, whether that's agriculture or whether that's general consumer products or anything beyond that, I think is definitely a positive step forward in the right direction. You're right, David. This industrial economy is very broad and it goes beyond just agriculture, but it is so much related to this land access problem because this is what the industrial economy seeks to do is push people off their land so that it can consolidate that land into commodity farms, among many other things. 
which makes everyone at risk. And this industrial economy that you're talking about has implications for the way that we're going to deal with this climate change going forward. And I like the way that Ian responded to that question about, are we adequately and appropriately addressing climate change? Well, I think the answer to that is very obviously no, not right now, at least on the society-wide scale. But, you know, like Ian has suggested, um, these small groups, these communities, people are looking for better paths forward. And those may be the best options for us, because when it comes to absorbing the risks and absorbing the shocks of environmental destruction, environmental change, the only way to do that is through local adaptation. And Wendell Berry wrote in an essay appropriately titled Stupidity and Concentration, quote, factory farms increase and concentrate the ecological risks of food production. A farm, on the other hand, disperses the ecological risks involved in food production. A good farm not only disperses these risks, but also minimizes them. On a good farm, ecological responsibility is inherent in proper methodologies of land management and in correct balances between animals and acres, production and carrying capacity. A good farm does not put at risk the healthfulness of the land, the water, and the air. End quote. But of course, as Ian pointed out, these good farms cannot exist if the land itself is inaccessible and too expensive for farmers to access. So Daniel, this is an episode that really devoted a lot of time to what can we do. But maybe we can boil down some of these thoughts, these long uh, back and forth questions, this discussion you had with Ian, with the Land Trust, and with Chris, and summarize it just as a couple of simple points. So what can we do? Actually, something that Ian said makes me a little bit hopeful, for lack of a better word. And that's when he talked about where Agrarian Trust is focusing its initial efforts. Ian mentioned that they're focusing on areas where they can have the biggest impact to implement new and innovative models for sustainable communities, which they can then replicate those models in different areas of the world. But where they're starting is where they have the most support. And that support comes from the local consumers. So where are consumers themselves interested and passionate about local consumption? And beyond that, where are the organizations that can support new models? So these are the land trusts. These are attorneys. These are landowners and farmers who are willing to be a part of a new sustainable and local system. That's where this organization, Agrarian Trust, is focusing first. And to me, that's very encouraging because when we talk about the consumer having the ultimate vote with the dollar, well, when you think about a consumer trying to quote unquote vote with his or her dollar at a Walmart store, I mean, how much impact can we really have as individuals? But we're looking at this kind of from the opposite angle, which is... Yeah, and I always hate that idea that we as consumers have no power, but there is something there. It's much less. But I mean, ultimately, in this scenario, if you're just buying what you think is a more sustainable product, you're ultimately still fueling that consumerism, that industry that begets all these problems in the first place. Exactly, David. And that's kind of why I like this angle, which is we're not going to an established industrial company trying to purchase one of the lesser evils. Here we have the opportunity as communities and as individuals to attract people who are willing to work on an alternative that's better by providing that initial support and interest. So what can we do? Purchase locally. Support the land trusts in your area that are working to conserve land and also encourage 
policies and practices that will not just preserve land, but also encourage the use of that land for sustainable agriculture. Get your neighbors involved, tell your friends, tell your families. Rip out your lawn and build a farm. Honestly, David, that's not a bad idea. I mean, how much energy and and inputs go into preserving beautiful lawns when, hey, you could be growing some food. I've honestly, I've got a whole like thing prepared on lawns and lawn culture. Um, now is not the time nor the place on the end of a very long episode already, but it is something for sure for future topics. But in that same sense, you know, understanding the value of our land is so important. Ian spent a lot of time talking about this and the way in which we value land based on its quote, highest and best use. This way of looking at land incentivizes this short-term extraction. The way we value land needs to fundamentally change. If we look at land and value it higher when we destroy it to make these short-term profits to build these unsustainable developments, communities, whatever it is, rather than valuing it for its ability to grow our food, the very base thing that we need for life, and to do so sustainably, as well as other ecological benefits like carbon sequestration, soil health, clean water, preventing this runoff that pollutes our water systems and ultimately finds its way back into our food system and ultimately affecting our own health, Well, then we have a tremendously broken incentive structure. And we talk about this all the time on this show, broken incentives, creating these huge problems. And then people wondering, well, why is this a problem in the first place? Like, where did this come from? And only identifying the symptoms of these larger systemic issues. And this is where we're always trying to get down to the idea that it's not just enough to point at this and slap on some band-aid or subsidies or welfare, whatever it is to fix this, when the ultimate sources of these problems are so much deeper and stronger and embedded within our culture, our economy, and oftentimes even in laws itself. So whatever we can do to step back, look at this from a systems perspective and realize where it is that we messed up. And land, the value of land, the use of land, and our food, the origin of our life, I think it's just about the best possible way that we can get down to where the sources of these issues are really coming from. And anything that values land in a better and more responsible, sustainable way, well, that's a great step towards more productive change. And it's not necessarily going to be easy. You know, it's pretty easy to value land when all you're doing is multiplying out the number of apartment rooms that you can build by the rent that they're going to attract. But when you actually have to factor in the health of that land, the ability for that land to produce what we need, the ability of that land to provide for a local community, maybe the math isn't that simple anymore. And that's part of the problem is trying to reduce our world to simple equations, simple formulas. But I don't think we need to go on, David. No, I agree. We often bog everything down on the show in statistics and numbers and math. And really, in the end of this this conversation is about the land itself and understanding that there's a value there that doesn't need to be measured or quantified because it's something that we all fundamentally understand as members and citizens, as beings on this earth. And that brings us to the end of another episode here on Ashes Ashes. If you'd like to learn more about any of the things we discussed today, look at sources or to find the website for the Agrarian Trust, you can do all that as well as read a full transcript of this episode on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible, and we will never use ads to support this show. We will never purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to crowd your news feeds. So if you like this show and you'd like us to keep going, you can support us by giving us a review or recommending us to a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's 
contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read them and we appreciate them. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, we've got a show about automation, work, jobs, and the fundamental questions of what it means to exist and survive in our modern world. We're really excited about this one and we hope you'll tune in. Until then, though, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye bye.